our great hope that the power and the glory lie with you. So we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see that, to help us to, our faith to be reinforced, Lord, as you speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles into the book of Psalms, right in the middle of your Bible, as it were, where we're going to look this morning at Psalm 88. And Psalm 88 I've entitled, The Saddest Prayer, because it really is perhaps the saddest prayer you'll find anywhere in the Bible. There's this and one of the psalm that have no happy verses in them. They just leave you in the dark. And most psalms are not quite like that, even though there's plenty of laments in the psalms, plenty of wrestling through and struggles. They always send, they, they tend to end at a later place of reflection where they can look back and see what the Lord did to bring them through, or they end with at least some truths that they can hold on to to give them hope while they're still in the dark. But two psalms in the Bible, Psalm 39 and the Psalm 88, don't do either of those things. They just leave us kind of in a dark place. So we have to wonder, why is there a psalm like this in the Bible? Well, hopefully we can figure that out as we look through it. But I hope you're there in Psalm 88. I want to encourage you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to the Mahalath Leonith, a mascal of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have, crushed my com- you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Salah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your steadfast assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is God's word. Would you have a seat? When I was, uh, how old was I? 22, I think I was. I and had been dating who is now my wife for a while, and 
had come to the point of deciding that I wanted to ask her to marry me. And so I went to buy a ring. I really didn't know anything about rings. I knew I really didn't know anything about anything when you're 22 years old. I didn't really have any money either. Um, but nonetheless, I went uh, to a, a close friend of the family who was a jeweler, figured he'd you know, steer me in the right direction and helping me pick out a ring. And, and uh, as I looked, you know, I came to the conclusion of all the things you can get, I wanted to get a diamond ring uh, to have to offer Rhonda when I proposed. And I didn't know really why at the time, other than a diamond was the, perhaps to me the prettiest jewel there was of all the gemstones. And you know, as, as I later reflect back about a diamond, the diamond is a traditional choice when you give a, a woman... Uh, a, an engagement ring or a wedding ring, and I think there are some good reasons for that. I mean, it is perhaps one of the most beautiful gemstones there is, but there's other things to a diamond, too, and I was doing a little bit of research and about how are diamonds formed, and I probably should have called our local geologist, wherever he is out there, to get the details. There he is. Uh, talking about how diamonds are formed, I figured you'd be the expert to know. That's our local geologist here. Uh, but yeah, you know, as I was reading about the formation of diamonds, they're formed, you know, deep in the center, deep in the belly of the earth, where there is some really harsh conditions in existence. There are high temperatures, and there's lots and lots of pressure. And diamonds are formed from, you know, carbon atoms that under this high temperature and under this high pressure get bonded together with each other so that they form these crystals. Uh, these crystals that can be found later as the magma pushes them up towards the surface in mines. And as miners find them and bring them out, they don't look like what you would expect on a, a wedding ring because they still have more difficult, harsh conditions to face as the jeweler takes them and he begins to hack away at them, cutting away the rough edges and eventually polishing them until they become this something that's absolutely stunning and beautiful. And I, I think that's such a great picture of marriage, because marriage puts you under harsh conditions <laughs> of high temperatures and pressure, but it has a purpose in it. You know, if your foundation in marriage are indeed the vows that you make to one another, they hold you even though those things get hard, and as a result, over time, you begin to look more and more beautiful. Your marriage is meant to be. It's, I, I don't think it's a mistake that God compares his relationship to his church with marital relationship. Of all the relationships he uses, that one. Because as Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, as he's giving instructions to husbands, you know, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her beautiful. And in the last chapters of the book of Revelation, when we see, you know, the new heavens and new earth coming down, he describes that as his bride coming down, and she is, she is gloriously uh, dressed. That's the picture. There is, a, there is a time when they go from these carbon atoms to this beautiful gemstone that is, becomes priceless only because they have gone through the pressure and the heat and the harsh conditions that exist within the belly of the earth. And when I think about suffering, because this psalm is really about suffering, you think, why would a psalm like this be in, in the Bible? Because suffering has a role to play in the life of a believer. It has a very important role to play, and it's kind of like, I think, those harsh conditions that we find that form these diamonds. 
In Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about suffering, and he says it like this. If you begin in chapter 5, if you begin in the end of verse 2, he says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But then he goes on to say, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Character produces hope. So suffering leads us down this path that eventually we reach hope. Now, the psalmist in this doesn't seem to have ever reached the place of hope. And yet, that's the end goal of suffering. And you think, well, what is it exactly a hope of? And I think that's what Paul is talking about in verse 2. It's the hope of the glory of God. Now, we really don't quite fully understand what that means, other than we have some, something to, to hope in. It's the glory of God. It's, it's something that still remains somewhat of a mystery, and I don't think that mystery is, is revealed until we have gone through the very thing that requires us to be gone through in order to get there. You don't get to that place of hope in the glory of God until you've been through the suffering, suffering that has is, that is brought endurance, that has developed character and has led to hope. So I, in essence, I really think that's why we have a psalm like this in the Bible. It's telling us about the importance of suffering and where it is leading. Now, I want to walk through that, some different aspects of suffering, because suffering, especially as we think about it as as believers who have grown up in kind of American culture that's really been uh, absent or suffering has not been a primary part of our own Christian experience, it's a bit of, it's a bit of a enigma to us. We don't really think that it's something that's necessary. And yet all through Scripture, if you read about suffering, you read the, the letters in the New Testament, they, they are adamant in explaining that suffering is what you will indeed experience as a believer. Now, we like to think that suffering is a result of the fallen nature of man, right? We, why, is there, why is God allowed suffering in the world? And we look back to the opening pages of Genesis, and we read the story of, of Adam and Eve and how Eve was seduced by the serpent to take of the forbidden fruit, giving some to Adam, and he ate as well. And so when God comes to the garden and asks them what they've done, eventually finds out, and, asks, and forces them to leave the garden, the place where they enjoyed this closeness with God, and put them under the sentence of death, and cursed the earth as a result, so that we experience a measure of pain and hardship in the things that we were called and created to do. You know, for example, there will be pain in childbearing, and the, and the earth will resist you as you seek to bring up uh, and raise crops by it. It will produce thorns and thistles so that you will have to now work by the sweat of your brow. Things will be hard. Suffering will exist. But I don't, I don't, I think that's the, that's the surface answer of why we have suffering. The deeper reason of why suffering is I think there is no other way to discover the hope of the glory of God unless you have walked in the steps of suffering. I even think Adam and Eve, to fully understand the depth of the relationship that they had with God to enjoy could not be understood without going through a period of redemption that God would work. Because there's something that's communicated about the depth of God's love for His people that they would never have known unless there was some way to put it on display. When Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. This is how he describes how God demonstrated 
His love. He has demonstrated His love because He had to redeem you. You get to see how far He would go, in other words. So there are things about suffering, it's not only a result of the fact that we live in a fallen world, but it's been ordained by God because it's what we needed to go through to really come to the place of understanding the hope we have of the glory of God. But let's look at suffering a little bit as we unpack this psalm. Because the suffering leads us, as we see, into the darkness. And in the darkness, we find and meet despair. And it's not until we have reached this absolute place of darkness and despair that we find there is a discovery that we get to make that will finally open our eyes to see the the hope of the glory of God. So as we walk through this psalm, the first aspect as we see about suffering is that there is a darkness about it. I mean, as you just listen to the way he describes what it's like, it is all-consuming, as he says in verse 1, I cry out day and night before you. It's not just a night activity or it's not just a one day. It's day and night, day and night, day and night. There isn't a moment that he gets a break from it. And it, he describes it as it's a lonely experience. Twice in this psalm as he talks about his companions shunning him or deserting him. It's isolating the level of despair. And what's interesting is you read the psalmist in, in, in his dis- discussion about what he's experiencing, not a single time does he talk about external things of circumstances that have caused this or brought this about. So we don't know what led him to this place of despair, other than the fact that we know that what he's experiencing isn't so much on the outside, but it's on the inside as he talks about it. In verse 3, for example, he says, for my soul is full of troubles. My soul is full of troubles. And I think when he says, I cry out day and night, it's not the kind of the cry like the shouting. I think it's the cry of like the weeping. I am weeping day and night because my soul knows nothing but trouble. And the only way he can describe it is this is what death must feel like. Because he goes on to say more than once to talk about, I'm, about that. In verse 4, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength like one like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. He says, this is what it must be like to be dead, to be suffering to the degree that I'm suffering. Now, I, most of us have, especially probably in this country, we don't really know what this suffering is like because we just haven't experienced it. We have sadly come to the, to the whether it's the subconscious connection that there is a comfort and Christianity go hand in hand together. And while in America that may seem to be true, you know, vastly speaking across the world, this is one of the worst times to be a Christian in history. As more and more people across the world are killed or suffering and persecuted for their faith. So for us to to continue to hold on to our comforts in America and associate that with our faith, doesn't fit what we find to be the reality of Scripture. Uh, you know, Andrew Brunson, the, the, the EPC pastor who was in Turkey for several years, you know, wrongly accused of being a terrorist and put in prison and locked away, you know, got to the point uh, describing that this is how he felt, completely alone, 
completely in the dark, completely isolated, that everyone and everything had abandoned him. I don't personally know what that's like. I mean, the darkest time that I faced, I've told you guys before, is you know, right before I left on that sabbatical, I think just the weight, weightiness of ministry was heavy upon me, and there was, you know, there was one particular night I found myself you know, out in the living room in the middle of the night in the dark, just weeping. Yeah, and it, it was not a pleasant experience. I mean, eventually that kind of gave way, but I do recall getting to the place where uh, even later on in that year, that, that was the first year I went on the, a, the long motorcycle ride with those guys up to uh, South Dakota. And I remember when I were planning that trip thinking, I've never been on a long ride. I'm not that experienced on a motorcycle. We might ride through torrential rainstorms. I know these guys ride through the rainstorms. I don't know what it's like to ride through the rain. We may be in the mountains when we ride through in the rain. And by the way, we did both of those things. <laughs> even hit hail. But the reality was I've never done that. I've never ridden in those conditions or a long way, and it crossed my mind that it was very possible that I might die on this trip. But you know what my thought was about that? It was comforting. It didn't make me afraid, not that I sought death, but there was an aspect when death seemed like a comfortable resolution to what I'm going through internally. You know, the uh, the psalmist is is getting at that. He's saying, this is what it's like. It's like to be dead. So, you know, as believers, as people who who claim to be having faith in God, knowing that suffering is going to come at some point in your life, and it's going to feel like death. It's going to feel like there is no even voice of God to be heard. It's going to feel like He Himself has abandoned you. Just knowing that, I think, prepares us for what is going to come. That's the first thing, that suffering is darkness. It is darkness. I I do find it interesting that that is actually the last word in the Hebrew in this psalm. The ESV captures it. The last word in the psalm is darkness. Other versions say, darkness is my closest friend. I think the NIV says it that, that way. But the actual Hebrew word that ends is darkness. But darkness leads us to a place of despair, which is what we see happening in the life of this psalmist. Where does the darkness lead? What leads you to a place of despair? And you think, well, what exactly is despair? To despair is to lose hope in everything. You know, everything that we have always known to to be hopeful about is suddenly gone. You know, it's easy in this country to be optimists. We tend to tell everybody when they're going through a hard time in order to encourage them, everything's going to be okay. Isn't that the universal language we use when someone's hurting? It's probably not a good one, but it's what we use. Everything is going to be okay. Why do we say that? Because largely that's been our experience. Life has been comfortable. Ah, it's going to turn out. Everything's going to be okay. But the psalmist is reaching to the point where he's coming to the reality that it isn't going to be okay. All I know is that all the things that I have put my hope in so far, have proved to be empty, and there isn't any left. That's despair. That's where he is. I I do find it interesting how he ends the psalm, not just with the word darkness, but if you look again, I think this captures it. He says, you have 
caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. And then he says, my companions have become darkness. My companions have become darkness. Now, a variety of people have tried to understand exactly what he's saying here. You know, NIV captures it, darkness is my only friend. When Tim Keller, when he looks at this psalm, he talks about the idea that, that perhaps the, the, the psalmist is writing a bit tongue-in-cheek, saying darkness is a, more, is a greater comfort than you are, God, kind of as a statement of way he's feeling. But I think there's more to that. My companions have all left me. I think that's what despair is, is when all of your companions, the companions that have been with you in the hard times are all gone. Now, you think about the different companions you've had in life. Companions provide you with really a guide. They, they help guide you through life. When you're young, who are your companions? Your closest companions are your mother and father. And what is their jobs? To lead you by the hand on the way you should go. Now, they may do that intentionally. They may do that unintentionally just by the fact that you live in their house. But they are leading you by the hand as your companions. Now, you get to... Uh, we talk... It's funny. When I do premarital counseling, uh, the main thing I try to do with the couple is to talk about understanding the way in which your parents have shaped you, the growing up in your home, because they have, whether they meant to or not, they have given you kind of a default view of the way you look at life and the way you treat things. And just to give you an example how that can creep up in your marriage, you know, when Ron and I first got married, my, I grew up in a household that, that believed it was, it was what, what's the word? Socially, oh, I can't even remember the word, how to use it. You were supposed to show up late to things. What's that word? Socially, uh, what? F- fashionable. It's like, yeah, more than acceptable, like, in, like you're supposed to. You know, it's not ever good to show up on time at like a party, for example. Well, that communicated for us with everything. It wasn't just party, it was everything. We just, you know, if you're supposed to be there, if something started at 6 o'clock, we'd get there at 7, you know. I had an uncle... <laughs> We'd have Thanksgiving together, you know, and it was supposed to start at noon. He'd get there at four. I mean, that, it was that significant. So we thought he was extreme, but, you know, that was because the Sanger way. Where Rhonda grew up in a family, her dad was, you know, he always wanted to be uh, in orderly. Everything was administratively put in, put in uh, its place. So for him, if you were on time, you were late. You know, you have to get there early. So you can imagine, we get married, the clashes that went on in the home about that. Because these were our companions, they had led us by the hand to guide us, right? But what we say in the psalm is these companions are gone. So that companion's gone, and your parents do give way to other companions in your life, companions of your friends, friends who will communicate values, right? The way that these are the things that are important about the way we live, because these are what we value. You know, value whether it's a, a social recognition, you know, to be liked or popular or whatever you might think of it. Or it's to achieve success. It's to be, you know, the smartest guy in your class or the most successful guy in your work. You know, the, the culture and friends that will guide us by the hand and would lead us to give us these things to put our hope in. Is this is what they're doing. You know, put our hope in the fact that, that we have succeeded in our jobs and been recognized by our peers and by our, uh, uh, our employers. Or our hope is in the fact, you know, it's led us to the kind of the, the altar of, of financial independence and security. Or our companion has led us, you know, to the altar of making our, our, our kids successful in all that they do. 
And, and by the way, all these things that the, our companions are holding our hands, leading us to put our hope in, are great things. It's great to see your kids' success. It's great for you to succeed. It's great for you to have a great reputation among your friends and peers. It's great for you to be rewarded in all these things. But the danger is these things become our hope, our ultimate hopes. And when he says, all of my companions are left, I think what's happening is the, that, that through this psalm, the psalmist is arriving at a place where all of these companions, that whether he realized it or not, he had some measure of his hope set upon, are now gone. And he's in despair. Because there is nothing that he has known his whole life that has proved to be hopeful is, remains. They've all shunned him. They've all proved not a help. And they're gone. And I think that's despair, and that's the place where God is bringing the psalmist to. Because I think he has to get there. And in fact, I think that's why the psalmist ends in darkness, because we have to get to the point where it's not, we, we, we've lost the idea that I know this is hard, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. Give me five days, give me 10 days, give me 30 days, you know, give me 90 days, and it's going to be all over, everything's going to be better. I think. This psalm, by ending in the dark note, is saying you have to get to a point of despair where you realize there is, it is not going to ever get better. All there is left is to die. That's it. Now, there are times we have biblical examples where that's the case when you read some of the stories of some of the, the characters in the Bible that we would hold up and revere. They knew what that was like. I mean, Job is the classic case of suffering. Job went through horrendous, you know, exhibition of things, losing, losing his family, all his children dying in terrible accidents of, of supernatural events, you know, if you think about him. All his wealth being swept away by marauders, his health disappearing to the point where he's out in the ash heaps on the outside of town, scraping his, his boils and sores on his skin, trying to find some measure of relief with the broken pottery that's there. And his friends, you would think, who want to comfort him, just come and condemn his faith. His wife tells him, curse God and die, thinking she's doing him a service, by the way. And Job refuses to do that. He says, though he slay me, I will trust him. There is a recognition that, that he knows there is no hope left. He is going to die. At least in his mind, that's where he is. Think about the story of, in, Daniel's is full of stories like this, the book of Daniel, the, the, the characters Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for those of you who are familiar with their story, here's three men, these were you know, Jewish people who had been uh, carried away in the exile when Babylon had <coughs> conquered Jerusalem, settled in Babylon, and to be raised to be uh, educated under the Babylonian uh, culture so that they could serve as advisors to the king. And yet there was others who didn't like them, and, and the king had risen up and created this golden image and says, everyone for 30 days has to bow down to this golden image and no other. I think it was the golden image, is that right? Am I getting these mixed up? Yeah. And they refused to do that. And the king brings them, and the penalty if they don't do that is to be thrown into this fiery furnace. The fiery furnace which is used to, you know, bake the, the bricks it, it's, it's tremendously hot. And he brings them in and asks them, will you bow down to the golden image? And they say, you know, no. And they say, well, you know, is your God able to save you? And they say something interesting. They say, 
Yes, our God is able to save us, but even if He doesn't, we won't bow down. Now, at the moment they said that, do you think they were thinking, oh, God is going to save us? I mean, we've read this story, so we know the outcome, but I don't think for a moment that they expected God to save them. Yes, He can. He's God. But we're not expecting that. At that moment in time, they knew what it was to despair. There is nothing left for us on this earth but death. That's it. Death. And there is something to arriving at that place where all your hope and everything that you've had it in related to this earth is finally gone. It's been stripped away. And you think, well, what is left? There's darkness and there's despair. I think what happens then is we get to the crux of this psalm, which comes often in the middle of psalms as they're surrounded, as they're kind of built up to the middle and they crescendo back down. In the middle of this psalm, you find some very key questions that the psalmist asks. He doesn't answer them. He just asks them. And I want you to look at them. Starting in verse 10. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed raise up, rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? These are the questions. And I don't think that you ask these questions until you're at this place of despair. Now, we don't have an answer in the psalm. But we do have an answer in the Bible, by the way. Like I said, I think there's a reason the psalm ends in darkness and doesn't have any happy ending, but I also think there's a reason this psalm isn't the only psalm in the Bible. Now, that would be crushing. <laughs> but it comes on the heels of Psalm 87, which we looked at two weeks ago. And if you remember, that's one of the most glorious psalms we find in the in this Psalter. It's, this, it's, this, it's uh, the one that we derive that hymn, you know, glorious things of thee are spoken, O Zion, city of God. And we talked about what is that? What does Zion represent? Zion represents the place where God dwells once all of His work has been done for His people. Remember, it's the place that He decides to put as His permanent resting place, because he's carried them through the wilderness, he's battled the evil of, of Egypt and all the enemies that they faced along the way, he's conquered the enemies in the land so that they arrive at a time of peace and prosperity and justice and Sabbath and rest. Zion is a destination. Now, what is Zion? Zion is the heavenly city that will one day come down out of heaven with God in its midst. It is the place that we will exist where, where finally we have come through all the suffering and we are the diamonds that God has been shaping us into through all the suffering. Does God, does anyone, do you work wonders for the dead? Do you, the departed raise up to praise you? Well, the answer is yes. What was interesting about the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came to the place of despairing of anything in this life, realized the only thing left for them was death. They get thrown into the fiery furnace, 
By the way, they do. And it's so hot that all the soldiers who threw them in died. But when they were in there, the king looked in and he sees a fourth man walking around in them in the fiery furnace and they seem to be unharmed. And you think, what was in there? What's in the darkness? What's in the place of despair? What's in the fiery furnace? Well, there's someone already there. That's the thing. This language of being forsaken and abandoned is not unfamiliar. It shouldn't be to those of you who are familiar with, for example, Psalm 22 or Jesus' final words. What were the words that Jesus uttered on the cross? Well, before that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was experiencing the despair, the utter despair, far more of despair than we will ever face. Because while it seemed that God was silent and not there to the psalmist, He really wasn't there when it came to what Jesus was experiencing. Now, have you ever been in a place where you're in total darkness? It was a few years ago I took my daughter to the, the what is it called, the Inner Space Caverns near Georgetown. Anyone ever been there? It's an interesting cave. It actually exists underneath I-35, which to me was just mind-blowing. But we went in there, you, you know, you tour through, you, you, you go round corners, big bends this way and that way, and uh, farther and farther down gently, and he's telling you about the, you know, the stalactites and stalagmites and the things that are still, as they call them, actively growing in the, in the cave. But, it, but at one point, you get into a room, and he... he he invites you to turn off your flashlights, and then they turn off the cave lights, and you're just there in absolute, complete, utter darkness. And it's, it's really disorienting. Because, you know, you, I mean, you can't see your hand here. You can't see anything. You know that there's a room full of other people, but you have absolutely no awareness that they're there. It's, it's as if they've just disappeared. You know that they're there logically, but you feel completely isolated disoriented and alone, and that which is the psalmist describing, all my companions have shunned me. I'm in the dark. I'm groping about. There's nothing. But in that darkness, you find that there is a hand that grabs you, just like he did in that fiery furnace, because Jesus is there. Jesus is there. And he's essentially telling you, you're right. There is only despair in this world. But I didn't create you for this world. I created you for the new world. And there is the hope of the glory of Zion that remains. But you really won't understand that glory until you've gotten to the place of despairing of all else. It won't be the thing that you are ready to die for. Paul said last week, Alan was looking at Philippians chapter 3. You recall when, when Paul is talking about uh, what does it mean to experientially know the Lord, you know, as, as Alan was talking about that. And in, in verse 10, he says, you know, I want to know you in the power of your resurrection and the, fel and the fellowship of sharing in your suffering so that somehow I too may obtain to the resurrection of the dead. You think, what is Paul talking about? Paul knew something about the nature of suffering that brought him closer to experiencing in this life the love of Christ. We don't get that. That's a strange verse to us. 
But somehow the suffering that Paul endured got him to a place where he understood that. He wasn't afraid of it anymore. Those of you Lord of the Rings fans, Lord of the Rings fans, so probably overused these days, but it's a... In the Lord of the Rings, towards the end of the story, you have Sam and Frodo, as you may know, they're carrying this ring of power to the Mount Doom where they can throw it into the volcano and have it be burned up and hopefully save the world, you know, save the great power Sauron from rising up and conquering all of Middle Earth. And they're wandering through his territory because that's where Mount Doom is. And it's just a place of doom, appropriately named. You know, there's no sun, it's just darkness, it's just gloom. And Sam has been this optimist the whole time. You know, Frodo is carrying the ring. He's feeling the weight of the burden. He's kind of despaired long ago, but Sam has always been the one to try to keep him encouraged. And he's been the voice of saying, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. But there's one point in Mordor, he finally reaches the reality. He finally realizes they're not going to make it back. That's it. Even if they get to Mount Doom, and throw it in. They can't make it out. But rather than end right there, it was as though it suddenly set him free to just press on and do what they needed to do. It's like the fear was gone. You get to this place, as the psalmist does, you know, as a writer of Hebrews says, that the work of Jesus came to end fear, to take away our fear of death. Death has no hold on us anymore. Because there is something beyond death. But you have to get to death in order to experience it. You have to go through death in order to experience it. What does Jesus tell you, tell us to do as his disciples? He says, You must, if you want to follow me, you have to, you have to take up your cross and follow me. For whoever finds his life in this life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will find it. The only way to get to this hope of glory is through darkness and despair and death. When we've despaired of every other hope, there we finally see the hope of the glory of Christ. Because Jesus is the one who faced the ultimate wrath of God so that your death would not end in death, the death that we deserved was already paid for, was already covered, so that all that remains now is for us to get to that place where we grab his hand in death and he brings us out with a resurrection. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for Psalms, Psalm, this psalm in particular, this challenging, dark psalm which helps us to see there is glory on the other side, even though this psalmist had yet to experience in this particular writing. Lord, we know there is an answer to those questions. Who will praise you from the grave? We will. Because it's in the grave that you grab our hand and you raise us up. Lord, help us to walk in light of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.